Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks one Colgate community member 13 questions. Today is a special episode, and it doesn't follow our regular 13-question format. And instead, we're going to have a roundtable type of uh, chat here with three of Colgate's political science faculty to discuss the election and the many, many outstanding questions that remain unanswered. Uh, Right now, as of this recording, it is 1 p.m. on November 4th. Uh, According to the Associated Press, uh, currently, uh, Joe Biden, uh, the Democratic challenger and uh, you know vice president uh, has 238 electoral votes. Um, the incumbent, President Trump, has 213, and there are 87 electoral votes um, yet to be called by the Associated Press. Um, at this point, the outstanding states um, are Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North, Car- North Carolina, Georgia, and Nevada. Um, as well as uh, Alaska, interestingly enough. Uh, So with that, uh, I'm going to uh, introduce our guests here a little bit. Uh, We have Assistant Professor Sam Rosenfeld, Assistant Professor Matt Luttig, and Professor Michael Hayes. And a little background about our panelists. Uh, Professor Hayes specializes in, in American politics, Congress, and public policy. He earned both his master's and PhD from Indiana University. Uh, Professor Luttig teaches courses that include America as Democracy, Campaigns and Voting Behavior, Political Psychology, and News Media and the Political Process. Uh, Professor Luttig earned his Master's and PhD from the University of Minnesota. And Professor Rosenfeld teaches courses that include American Political Development, the Presidency and Executive Leadership, and War and Shaping of American Politics. Uh, Professor Rosenfeld's newest book, The Polarizers, Post-War Architects of Our Partisan Era, was published in 2018 by University of Chicago Press. So gentlemen, welcome to 13. And uh, I would be curious to uh, hear your impressions of uh, the uh, early tallies from uh, the end of election day um, yesterday and uh, what what you think about that. And I guess we'll we'll start off uh, with uh, Professor Hayes. Um, the two things that I feel like we know with some certainty right now are that the Republicans are going to hold the Senate. I don't see any way that they're going to flip those. I'd be happy to be contradicted on that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And the other is that, um, well, I shouldn't say with certainty. I think I'd rather be Biden. I think that that Trump needs to win more of the remaining states than Biden does, and that Biden's looking, I think he's, some some people have called Arizona and others haven't, but I think he's won that, and I think he's going to squeak out Wisconsin, um, and I think either Michigan or Pennsylvania, and I kind of think Nevada, but I'm, I'm not sure, but I think Biden will probably win, but he'll have divided government, um, and Trump did, like, way better. Than anyone forecast. So go on to uh, Professor Rosenfeld. What What do you think? Yeah, um, you know there is a kind of miracle shot for Democrats in the Senate. If I mean, it looks like has Collins been announced in Maine? Is that? I mean, she. Uh, That's the but last assuming she wins, that was a hopeful flip, um, and they're not going to get that. 
they would be, I believe, too short. And if both of the Georgia races go to runoffs, there could be, because um, both of those would go to runoffs if, if neither got a majority, you know, that would be, a, uh, needs to say Democrats would uh, concentrate resources and energy as much as possible in um, uh, elections that would take place, I believe, in early January in Georgia. So it would be kind of ground zero for a lot of, um, you know, continuation of this campaign. But it's a real long shot, I think, for in Georgia after the presidential election. Um, it, it's hard to say, but that would be tough. And that would that would that would be if Biden wins clawing their way to a 50-50 Senate. But I agree with Michael that it's pretty, um, uh, it's pretty, pretty unlikely. Um, and that, uh, and the House, I should say, you know, one of the things you're going to notice, and this happened in 2018, and in a lot of ways it happened in 2016, uh, in terms of the popular vote, all of these votes haven't been counted out West in California and Washington, et cetera. That's going to run up Biden. And it seems like the polling error, which is very big this year, um, is also following recent patterns where the polling error is, uh, you know, misleads people about how well Democrats are doing in the Midwest and in the Southeast. Um, but then out West, uh, the polls are either more accurate or sometimes understate uh, Democratic gains. Um, and that's why Arizona looks like it's kind of hitting its target rather than falling far short uh, for Democrats like other places. But that just means we don't know yet. And I think we're likely to be seeing a much a more substantial Biden popular vote, uh, House uh, seats being held on by Democrats that they had won, say, in California in 2018. But for the time being, they're losing seats in the House after a lot of, uh, you know, pollsters and prognosticators had, had expected uh, Democrats to expand their House majority by about 10 seats. I mean, they're losing seats left and right. Uh, New York 20, 22nd here is still, you know, uh, Tenney is, has a substantial lead. They haven't counted all the votes yet. Um, so the, it was down ballot. This was a, uh, I mean, this was a this was a very bad night for Democrats and for the prospects of a Biden, <laughs> a Biden presidency facing a Mitch McConnell Senate amidst a, a pandemic and an economic crisis. Um, I, I, I don't think you couldn't, I don't think there's any understating the gravity of the dysfunction um, and governance problems that we're, um, we're heading into. I mean, so that said, I, I also agree with Michael that Biden's in a good position. It looks like they've counted all the votes in Wisconsin. And he's up by 20,000. There's going to be a recount there, but very rarely do recounts yield that uh, a shift in, in ballots that are anywhere near that number. It looks good in Michigan. Nevada is a real, uh, it's going to matter. If he doesn't end up winning Pennsylvania, he would, he would need Nevada. Um, and so that's where I get... Uh, I think people need to pay attention. Um, and then there's this chance of, of Georgia actually uh, uh, flipping, um, uh, which would be striking and kind of counter to the trends of, uh, of lots of other states. Yeah. Anyway. Nevada right now, I think uh, with 67% reporting, you've got uh, like an 8,000 vote difference, which yeah. is pretty wild. And I don't think we're going to hear any more about Nevada until tomorrow, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah Professor Ludwig, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I agree with everything that Michael and Sam was saying. Um, the two things that 
that kind of I've been thinking about. One is that this con the situation right now is kind of my most feared scenario um, for things like Donald Trump pulling shenanigans and trying to get ballots not counted. And <laughs> so we're going to have to see how this plays out. I think Pennsylvania, I think the earliest we can expect them to finish counting is Friday. Um, and I, you know, think we can expect some legal challenges to the counting of those votes. And so in terms of both the kind of legal challenges as well as the kind of state of social harmony in America, I think the, you know, this close election that hinges on, you know, these few remaining largely mail-in ballots is, is a little bit worrying. I don't want to, you know, sound too alarmist, but but um, I, you know, I do think that there are some reasons for concern about what's going to happen in terms of protests and um, things like that. The second thing, and I think Sam alluded to this a little bit, is just how bad the polling was. I mean, I woke up yesterday, and you know, I, I was feeling very optimistic. That obviously betrays my kind of political leanings, but. But boy, they, I think they screwed up really bad. And I think there needs to be, you know, for people who are in this industry of public opinion polling, which I am to, to a very small extent, but I, you know, pay attention to it. I think it was a really big miss. And I, you know, I have a lot of questions because there was a lot of hand-wringing over the misses in 2016. And we thought we solved it. Um, we thought we had a pretty good understanding of why we missed uh, states like Wisconsin in, in 2016. And, you know, there were lots of efforts to correct for it. So I'm kind of at a little bit of a loss. I mean, the polling was really off in Wisconsin, even though Biden's up by like a point. I mean, the polling averages suggested that he was up by like 10 points there. Yeah. Um, and Florida, I think Trump won by four or five points and the polling averages suggested Biden was up two or three. So there's, you know, this is not, this is a very big polling miss um, in, in some of these states. So if, if I got to just uh, like follow up, it's clear Republicans, their internal pollsters were just as wrong um, in the sense of there was reporting that they were, you know, pessimistic uh, yesterday and just their decisions in the last week or so were pretty defensive. There was, there was not a sense that they were, they had their finger on the pulse in a way that um, public pollsters and democratic pollsters um, uh, didn't, which is just again to underscore the profundity of the difficulties in modern polling. This guy, uh, uh, David Shore, who's a um, kind of left-leaning data analyst, um, he had been talking about for a while his sense that even though they corrected for the mistake of 2016, a lot of pollsters in um, uh, waiting for education because education polarization, uh, mm -hmm. a partisan divide between having a college degree or not among white voters, um, has become very salient. And so pollsters addressed that by trying to wait for education. But Shore was just worried that the the problem extended beyond just education to a sorting he thinks of people with low trust um low social trust uh uh into the republican party under trump um and those that predicts a propensity to not want to talk to pollsters um and it's a lot harder harder to wait for um and it just seems to be uh you know in a in a 
now several cycles in a row kind of under uh, significantly under reporting uh, Republican strength. You know, given where we are, and I guess the um, not so surprising statement from the president uh, late, uh, or I guess early this morning it was around 2 a.m. that basically claiming that he won. Do you, I mean, looking back, has there been a moment like this in American history where a, a president has um, claimed victory prior to all the votes being counted? I can't think of one. No, no this, I mean, you know, 1876 was a uh, hotly contested election and there's always politics around ballot count. But I mean, that's part of what I think has um, has a lot of people very shaken, uh, you know, as much as in 2016, it's, it's worse in 2020 to have kind of confirmation that um, a president as brazen in his kind of uh, disregard for small d democratic um, rules, uh, you know, that a substantial minority of the population is, is more than happy to uh, to vote for him twice. Hmm. And there was a lot of talk, obviously, about Florida and, um, you know, coming around. And, and uh, Matt, you had talked about the polling numbers there indicating that that Biden held the lead. Is it too early to know what really happened in Florida? Um, I mean, I think we can start, you know, making some, suge- you know, suggestions based on the data coming out. I mean, it looks like Biden really underperformed, or maybe the better way to phrase it is that Trump really overperformed in Miami compared to four years ago. Um, and there's a lot, you know, the conversation that I heard last night from, you know, people in media newsrooms analyzing this stuff was that it was largely the Cuban vote um, around Miami that uh, the Latino vote in Florida um, in particular just, you know, were much more favorable towards Trump than a lot of people were anticipating. And we also saw some signs of this in Texas, where um, Trump seemed to pick up on the Latino vote compared to four years ago, and, you know, more than was expected. So it seems like um, part of the explanation for Florida is that Trump kind of overperformed expectations among Latinos. I have a question. If I can put on the question or have for a minute for Sam and Matt, which is, is there any, I've been curious, because I know nothing, I have no exit poll data, nothing, but do you think that the surprising degree of Hispanic support for Trump in these places, apart from the Cubans who are different, has to do with people who came here legally and aren't sympathetic to immigrants who are trying to come in illegally? That's just a guess, you know, like, would that be? I mean, Matt can, can chime in if he has more information. I've been kind of avoiding looking at the in detail at the exit polls right now because they're so, um, you know, they've famously been very difficult to use for measuring kind of racial and ethnic uh, vote share, and they're so incomplete right now. But the Hispanic story of Hispanic voting uh, in the Trump era, I mean, I, I just, this, there has been evidence for this going back to 2016. Donald Trump, the candidate of Build the Wall, um, improved Republicans' vote share among Latinos over Romney in 2012. And then polling has 
you know, it's understated, it turned out, but polling has consistently for four years shown that that kind of aggregate modest shift towards the Republicans uh, under Trump has has held, um, which is very, <laughs> it's very counterintuitive to, I think, popular conceptions of, of what Trump's kind of racial and ethnic politics would imply. And it just, it underscores, as you were alluding to, Michael, it's like, it's a, that is a artificial demographic category that encompasses a whole lot of complicated and um, highly uh, diverse subpopulations. Um, and there's, it's, it seems to be a combination. There's a Cuba story in a Cuban story in, in, in Florida that um, in part res- is a function of the campaign and the Republican party in that state, which is very effective, actually spending a ton of time and resources and energy um, mobilizing that population. But beyond that, there's a gender component. I mean, it's, uh, there's an assimilation component, I think, to second generation uh, Latino voters, particularly men, vote more like, you see some of the same patterns you see among whites in terms of men and non-college educated voters being more likely to, uh, to vote Republican. Um, uh, and yeah, I think all of the whole four years illustrates that the, the notion that immigration and immigration policy is the central uh, kind of fulcrum around which you can uh, win or lose uh, Hispanic identifying voters is just clearly not true. There's just other issues and both there's disagreement on their position on those issues. And, uh, there's just lots of other issues that, um, uh, that they find uh, many of them find, uh, more salient. And just to build onto that, I would, I would just say that immigration was basically not an important issue in this election because of the pandemic, um, kind of, sucking up all the air. So it's kind of an interesting counterfactual to think through, like if this had been a normal election cycle where Trump's immigration policies would probably have been a much um, more important kind of factor in the campaign, would he have done as well among Latinos? I mean, I don't obviously know the answer, but um, so I think that as to kind of understanding why this has occurred, I think it's a bit of a puzzle that that will require a bit of unpacking. Um, you know, looking at the Senate races too, I think um, that North Carolina race, I, I was just uh, uh, seeing. So, you know, you have the Republican incumbent is Tom Tillis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking at the Real, Real Clear Politics um, polling for that race um, from Sunday and Monday. And both of them have Cunningham winning, uh, you know, by two to four points. Um, what do you think's going on there? Yeah, I mean, North Carolina just appears to be a kind of underperformance across the board, particularly in light of the fact that Georgia is as close as it is. Um, it, Cunningham had, had some trouble this campaign with a personal scandal um, that hurt his favorabilities, but didn't seem to be affecting him in the polls. Um, and he was a I don't remember if he was running ahead of Biden or uh, I think he was for a while running ahead of Biden and Trump was running ahead of Tillis. Um, and you saw a kind of tightening towards the ends across the board. But um, yeah, I don't know what this is telling us. I mean, part of the story here is the gains Biden made are in metro areas with uh, college educated um, 
populations uh, and the Atlanta metro area just kind of dwarfs in its size in proportion of the Georgia population, your research triangle kind of uh, 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 and Charlotte metro areas in, in North Carolina. Um, and so to the extent you're seeing the same pattern in both places, it shakes out slightly different at, at the margins. I'm curious to hear uh, each of your thoughts on what this means for governing, um, having, you know, having the split um, Senate and the House. And it looks like, I mean, as the numbers stand right now, it looks like Biden's going to squeak out a win. And I, I know, um, Sam, you had uh, wrote you wrote something on Twitter that like was uh, a little terrifying and it was something along the lines of Biden inherits these problems. And then in 2022, um, you know, the midterms come and the Democrats are the ones that pay for it. Is that, is that how you see things kind of panning out here? Yeah. I mean, we're in a kind of presidency centered polity. Um, The president bears the brunt of, uh, kind of blame or uh, reward for governance and and conditions that gives uh, the other party, if they share co-equal power in Congress, um, you know, incentives to obstruct and, uh, you know, not participate in constructive win-win negotiations with the president's party to to pass legislation. Um, And Mitch McConnell in particular, uh, and that Republican Senate caucus is well um, well versed in and committed to that kind of approach, and um, you know that translates. It's it's always midterm elections are very typically bad for the incumbent um, presidential party, um, and uh, you know the Senate map isn't is okay, but isn't great for Democrats anyway in, in 2022. Um, so that's extrapolating a lot, but it's just a, Democrats have this very long-term structural problem in the Senate as their parties have sorted along rural and urban um, uh, uh, geographic divisions so sharply that just gives Republicans this huge cushion in a in a chamber that um, apportioned seats just uh, by state rather than population. Um, and what the hope was for Democrats was that they could, if they could re- get this election flip uh, control in the Senate, they could try and push structural reforms that would alleviate that, like and make DC a state, for example. Um, that's all out the window. They're not going to be able to, you know, appoint any judges uh, unless Mitch McConnell says so. Um, uh, their ability to govern uh, from the White House is going to be really uh, hindered. Yeah, if I can jump in, <clears throat> I I agree with Sam. I don't want to come across like I'm not agreeing with him, but um, everything he said, I agree with. But I think Democrats need. I'm really tired of hearing Democrats say that you know, the constitution gets in the way of us winning or we need to bring in new states or like it's set up where um, over half the Senate is rural and represents like way less than half the country and so on. And I think this is because I'm old, not because I'm a political scientist, but it's like Democrats used to be competitive in almost all those states. And I think they need to try to do that. Um, I'm remembering in part George McGovern's autobiography, Grassroots, 
<clears throat> because he was actually a college professor at where was he? What well, doesn't really matter. But anyway, he was a college or a history professor, and he was approached by someone in the Democratic Party in South Dakota, and they said we'd like to hire you to be the the Democratic chair. And we're really weak here. There's like no Democrats at all. We want you to go around and try to like galvanize the party and go to events and different things. And like the first third of his book is really fascinating. It's all about that. But it's like he said, well, okay, like how do I get paid? They said, well, you have to raise that money. You know. So he gave up, I think, a tenured position as a historian, uh, or at least a position where his tenure looked likely enough to go do this thing. And he went around in this really hostile environment, and he just converted people. And eventually, I mean, like Tom, Tom Daschle followed him, you know, it's like not crazy for Democrats to come from places like South Dakota. And uh, I think more, not just geographically, but I think Democrats have to talk to people besides each other. I think but the, the Republicans are guilty of this too. But I mean, Democrats talk to each other. And I think um, they just take it for granted that a whole lot of issues are morally right and that any rational person would go there. And there's just a lot of America that doesn't agree with them on a lot of things. I think their abortion position is way too extreme and that a lot of people who don't like Trump um, voted against him on that. I think um, some of the other issues, maybe LGBTQT and some of those um, I'm not saying I am not on the side of the Democrats in this, but it's like they just they have no idea like how far they are from not just the crazy Republicans who are like so far off the right that they're off the street, but just like lots and lots of more or less centrist voters. And I, if I were President Biden, I would go around and I would do a listening tour. I would just like I would talk to farmers like, what is it that makes you know, why are you so mad? What is it that makes you like Trump so much? You know, or somebody needs to do that. And the same with blue collar whites and so on. But you see like progressive policies passing, right? So like a number of states passed, um, you know, recreational marijuana legalization. And then it, it just almost seems like there's the Democrats are, um, have an image problem. Like people are willing to vote for some progressive, um, I guess, causes or ideals, but not so much to pull the lever for progressive candidates per se. I mean, that's right. Um, the $15 minimum wage passed in Florida too, didn't it? Um, right. So it doesn't line up. It's like they just don't like Democrats. Well, we all have a lot of stereotypes about people who vote differently from us. Um, and those stereotypes, a lot of them have come from the, you know, the new media environment that we're all living in, where we're all kind of locked into different echo chambers. And so, you know, to, to your point, Michael, and I, I agree with it, the problem is any Democrat that goes into a South Dakota is going to be confronted with people who have all these images in their heads about what they stand for, given to them by Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's and Tucker Carlson's, and the ability for people who are of a different party to make inroads, I think has, it's become almost impossible. Um, and I think the, you know, the changes in the media environment have contributed a lot to that. So um, that I think is one of the big challenges in our country that, you know, predate Donald Trump and are going to exist for a long time afterwards is how do we talk to each other when we have all these images in our heads about what members of the party who disagree with us are really like. Um, and there's stereotypes on both sides and they tend to be, you know, wrong. You know, we, 
you know, most Democrats think something like a third of Republicans um, are millionaires or something like that. I, I don't know the exact statistic. Of course, it's only like 3%, right? Um, Republicans like think a third of Democrats are LGBTQ. And again, the actual reality is a lot lower than that. So we have these various ideas about what a typical Democrat is and what a typical Republican is. And it really makes, you know, any type of conversation or shared reality between the two parties difficult because of these misperceptions. Um, and so this is, as I said, something that has existed in our society for a long time, but it's one of the big structural problems I think that we face. Well, I think stereotypes, I, I agree with you, but I think stereotypes thrive on lack of exposure. I mean, like you have a stereotype of what you think Democrats are like or whatever. And if you can figure out a way to put yourself in front of people so that they discover that the stereotype isn't true, I don't know how you do that. And I think you can decide what issues you want to make prominent. Like I would, I hate Trump. I'm not, I don't hate Republicans so much as I hate Trump. And I would watch the Democratic presidential debates and I get so angry, I turn them off after 15 minutes and say, these people are too stupid to cover. You know, they're like arguing about all these things that appeal to like 20% of the electorate. And uh, so like, for one, I really hope I don't come across like, I like LGBTQT people, like don't get me wrong, but I mean, it's like, what fraction of the whole population are they? You know, and I'm thinking, um, I used Tim Carney's book in the Washington Study Group. Um, I don't know if I can remember the title of it, but he was basically trying to identify the original Trump base, like who were the people who liked him in the primaries, because like lots of Republicans voted for him for different reasons, some for abortion, some for the party, some for this or that, or hating Hillary Clinton or whatever, but it's like there's this core group. And trade agreements and other things led to loss of manufacturing and the complete disintegration of communities, schools closed, churches closed, all these things. And the Democratic Party did nothing for them. And then they're like wrapping themselves in like LGBTQs and, and transgenders. This is like the civil rights era. This is the, this is the issue of our time. And I'm thinking like, and I, I don't, there's a famous line in some Catherine Hepburn movie where she says, how many Lithuanians are there in America? And the guy named some low number. And she says, well, I guess we don't have to worry about justice for the Lithuanians. I don't want to come across like saying we don't have to worry about justice for LGBTQ. But like the Democrats are just celebrating the fact that they're worried about this group of people that's like 4% of the population or something and letting this very large group of people that used to be the core of their party just disintegrate. I need to speak up here just a little bit. Again, we're talking about a party that is consistently winning national majorities and being shut out of power as a... As a well, that's a good point. As a consequence and a minoritarian party that's basing its power on consistently not winning majorities, holding power in the federal government. Now, you bring up, I mean, it's, uh, there are stereotypes, yes, but look at who the candidate, and I certainly agree that re Democratic, like Republican primaries for president have turned into a kind of insular public festival of people talking about debates that are um, specific to uh, one side of engaged activists and not the whole country. But if you look at who the actual candidates were, not just Joe Biden, the most moderate of the major candidates for president, but um, you know, you're Steve Bullock, you're Greenfield in, uh, in Iowa. These are people who 
come from those states. Steve Bullock is a proven record of, of being able to speak to Montanans and, uh, uh, and win votes. Um, they are not, uh, your, I think your point's very, uh, your example is instructive. Like George McGovern was a left-wing college professor. We've got plenty of those in the Democratic Party now. Um, and he was a left-winger f- by Democratic standards back then. It was just in an era in which people were much more willing to split their tickets, to vote a, per- uh, you know, vote a person and not a party. And the parties structurally, yes, there's misperceptions and stereotypes, but they also really did substantively on a national level uh, sort out and polarize and stand for very different things, such that when you have a nationalized presidential election, it's much, much harder, even if you get a really, really good, moderate, um, uh, kind of organically connected to the community, uh, red state Democratic candidate, it's very hard for them to get people uh, to split their tickets. And Republicans are, face some of those same problems uh, in the reverse. Um, and that's where the, you know, when the parties were not as sorted, it's true, Democrats had, uh, did quite well in lots of rural states. Um, I think the entrenched rural and uh, malapportioned bias of the U.S. Senate was on a small d Democratic level, bad and wrong back then, just as much as it is now, even though Democrats benefited from for years. It's also what sustained Jim Crow segregation. It's what leads to kind of wasteful agricultural subsidies. It distorts all sorts of policy. It violates terms of kind of one person, one vote and individual political equality. Um, and it's now the case that because the parties have sorted out, Democrats are facing a really kind of sustained lockout effect by that those institutions. And it's true that if they don't have any chance to change it, uh, all they can do is try harder to uh, win votes in deep red empty states. But I, I do want to speak up on behalf of the idea that that's not actually in principle a good thing. I guess my question, that's a very good reminder. You make a very good point. But my question is, do we have to accept as inevitable this continued sort? Is there any way to break out of that pattern? Which for all sorts of reasons I could go into, I don't personally see as a good thing. Um, if I could imagine one condition that might change thing, it would be, I don't know, a global pandemic that kills 230,000 Americans because of the failure of the executive. Um, obviously, I'm being sarcastic, but this is obviously this huge exogenous event in America. Um, and it didn't really allow the Democrats who, as Sam mentioned, uh, nominated, I think, the most moderate of their, you know, potential um, candidates during the primary and and very little inroads were made um, into these rural states. And so so it's hard for me to imagine in light of the lack of inroads made this year, what could, you know, get something to change, I don't know. You know, in in past kind of realignments, uh, the introduction of kind of cross-cutting new issues has shaken up old kind of uh, old alignments, old partisan cleavages, and you build new kind of uh, uh, new alliances around the new issues. And I mean, I think there was plenty of serious thought about Trump as a realigning force that would at least introduce the potential for 
a period in the transition of kind of new bipartisan alliances. Like people were thinking, well, okay, he's coming in, he's this nationalist and he's throwing red meat on it about immigration, but he's also uh, kind of to the left of a lot of Republicans uh, in discussing economic policy and, and trade and welfare state. And maybe there'd be kind of Bernie Sanders, Trumpist type alliances over trade in Congress and this and that. Um, and it didn't, I mean, it's, it didn't happen. Obviously partisan animosity only intensified and um, there's been some, you know, like we see with Hispanic voters, there's been some interesting and counterintuitive movements, um, but it has seemed so far to just feed the, the two party polarized maw um, more than kind of shake things up in a, in a dynamic way that gets people working across the aisle. Is there anything evident, you know, looking at these early numbers now, um, where candidates maybe should have done more or, or are there things that maybe, you know, Donald Trump did uh, better than Joe Biden? Uh, I'm curious as to what you see as like areas where um, maybe they outperformed or that you weren't expecting or, you know, any efforts that maybe made any difference here? Canvassing would be one. I, I mean, I have no, I didn't come in with any prior opinion on this, but the pandemic obviously is disruptive all of our lives. Um, and Democrats took the pandemic seriously as a public health problem that caused the Biden campaign themselves to not do door knocking, not do the kind of um, you know, a, a lot of practices in the field that had kind of, we'd seen a revival of in the last uh, two decades. Um, and the Republicans did, they continued to do door knocking. Obviously Trump was also having big rallies that were used in part to have a kind of party building effect where you'd sign people up for the campaign and stuff uh, who showed up. Um, and part of what Democrats were pointing to is some indication from some of these, some people like David Shore and other data people that had come to think that person to person door knocking and those kinds of investments in the field are actually kind of inefficient use of resources for how many voters you turn out that way or, or let alone persuade um, and that you're probably better off spending the money uh, uh, through in other kind of electioneering efforts. And this was gonna be a kind of test of that. Um, it's certainly too early for me to have any sense of, uh, you know, real serious study about what the different kind of cap campaign methodologies uh, yielded, but that that would be one to look at. Uh, so build So yeah. So that was a thought that came to my mind too. Um, and just to kind of add to that, I guess is I think that the Biden campaign had a lot more money spent on TV ads. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, it's always hard to think, you know, through counterfactuals about what would have happened without that. But, you know, it's very rare that in a presidential contest, one candidate has a big disproportionate amount of money spent. Um, and I think that was the case for Biden in a lot of states this year. And it did not appear to turn into a big advantage. And in the Senate, they were swimming in cash, some of those Senate yeah, races. That's true. Like in South Carolina, I mean, they had like 10 times the normal amount of money uh, you usually have. And uh, again, all, all for not much. Mm -hmm. I was going to link back to the <clears throat> discussion we had earlier about how bad the polls were. 
this is probably both Sam and Matt have thought of this, but it wasn't made explicit back then. But to the extent that the state polls were wrong, Biden spent a lot of time trying to flip Ohio and Texas, which seemed to have been futile. He didn't make the Hillary mistake of ignoring the blue wall. Right. He went right. there over and over and over again. But maybe he should have taken that Texas and Ohio time and put it into Florida. Or maybe we, we maybe, you know, he may be wishing he spent even more time in Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, we think he's probably going to win these states, but maybe not. If he loses, a lot of people will wonder, like, what the heck were you doing out in Columbus? You know? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he was he was he was certainly in the home stretch playing defense by focusing on Pennsylvania, knowing that that would be the likely a likely tipping point state. But, um, you know, they were they were looking at all sorts of paths and all sorts of maps based on the, the polls that. Uh, um, that really led them astray. So is this a, a, an incredibly exciting time to be a political scientist or is this a terrible time? I, I can't tell. For me, since the other two of you are pausing, I'll just say that it, it's really difficult for me to talk in class without seeming, while seeming to be neutral because mm-hmm. I find it impossible not to say negative things about Trump, partly because I can't stand it, but partly because if you just say what he's done, you seem angry, like you're teaching the, I don't teach the presidency, but I teach the president and in the Congress course for a week or something. And it's like, this is a man who doesn't fill any administrative position. And like Reagan came in and like filled a whole bureaucracy with people who would do what he wanted. And uh, just, so that's my biggest problem. I just find it, I worry that I'm annoying a base of a, a subset of my students all the time because I find it impossible to, to talk about him in a way that doesn't just make me seem really biased. When I'd like to think I'm just kind of biased against cruelty and irresponsibility. Sure. Matt? Matt. Uh, <laughs> well, part of me would like to just turn off the media. I think it would be better for my mental health. Um, and I feel obligated to not do that um, to an extent, at least. So that's a bit of a challenge. Um, but you know, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, I'll write a paper at some point on this election. And so, I mean, I'm interested, I'm very interested in it. Um, so it's, you know, it's a little bit of both. I'm both interested in it and a little bit tired of it <laughs> at the same time. I love it. The worst <laughs> the gift, um, you know, just in terms of my areas of scholarship, I've studied polarization and I'm interested in its impact on governance in the American kind of constitutional structure. And the, the crisis is at hand. I mean, we, we, we're living it, we're going to continue to live it. Um, and it's, you know, there's also things that I find completely fascinating and flummoxing about um, some of these trends, for example, the, the kind of Trump presiding over a degree of racial and ethnic depolarization in the electorate. That was not something I expected. Um, so it's all from the point of view of analyzing and and talking about it, uh, uh, rich fodder. Um, you know, as a citizen, it's it's extremely uh, extremely frightening. And I certainly agree. As a as an educator, I uh, I think lots of lots of political scientists and others out there share Michael's um, struggle in the Trump years to. Uh, you know, not feel like you're abusing your position with this kind of captive audience of students. Um, but if you're talking about if you're talking about things like democracy, small d democracy and rule of law, et cetera, um, 
it's very hard to come across as as sort of balanced and both sidesing in your in your analysis. So that that continues to be difficult. I have a question for Sam, if I can jump in. I'm taking over the moderator role more than I should, but as the author of the polarizers, I wonder if you think that in a lot of ways Trump is Part, partly because of who he is, but I mean, like, I feel like he's really in a lot of ways bringing about um, responsible party governance, not in the sense of taking positions on issues. Let me rephrase that, a Jacksonian spoil system. Sure. Okay. In the sense that he demands so much loyalty and he insists on being able to do whatever it is he wants to do. And what I would say are checks and balances. He calls a deep state, but it's like, if you disagree with him, he wants to be able to fire you and replace you with, well, like you know, like some of his current health officials are essentially hacks. They don't have any skill whatsoever, and he wants to get rid of Fauci or whatever. And it's like, if you've given him enough money, you can be an ambassador. Right. <laughs> this really kind of reminds me of the Jacksonian spoil system. So, um, and since there, in as much as there is a really strong case for responsible party government, uh, I just, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I don't have, I'm not slanting one way or the other. I'm asking you, like, what do you think about that? Or, or for example, that that ruling about the civil service executive order he just issued, where he's going to be able to reclassify people so that he can more easily get rid of them, or firing its inspector general, there's a lot of those things. Right. The kind of 19th century elements of this are, are interesting. Um, you know, in terms of, to the extent my book or myself betray a, a, a affection for E.E. E. Schatzneider style kind of support of, so this, to make a long story short, there's political scientists in the middle of the 20th century who thought the problem with these two parties is they're not polarized enough. You know, there's, there's these Southern Democrats who are conservative and then there's liberal Democrats and there's liberal Republicans and no one's, you know, uh, there's no clear choices that are provided to voters. Nobody can be held collectively responsible one way or the other. Um, but you know, they were, they had in their mind a kind of like British parliamentary style system where I, I think they, they supported a modern technocratic bureaucracy to kind of administer policies. You just have, um, you know, party responsibility for sheer, you know, uh, steering the ship of state in a particular direction with, with new policies and legislation. Um, and, you know, but it is true, it's like Trump, for all his demands of loyalty and his kind of autocratic tendencies, this, one of the big stories of, of the first four years is that when it came to policy, he mainly, you know, trade was one real kind of deviation, um, but he generally gave the keys over to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell uh, in terms of uh, pursuing legislation and his own his own administrative efforts in terms of you know deregulation um, all kind of tracked with the conventional economic agenda of the Republican Party um, uh, in a way that his own personality uh, you might not have expected. I think we'll probably leave it there unless anyone has any final uh, final commentary or anything to that you're interested in seeing as the this kind of plays out. Uh, if there's anything that people should be looking for uh, as we, um, I guess, I'll ha have all of the votes tallied and, and come to a conclusion. I mean, as, as dour we, as we've been, 
do people should pay attention to the votes that come in that are likely to um, show uh, most like an outright, outright majority won by Joe Biden in the country. Turnout looks to be the biggest in a century. That's nothing to uh, sneer at. Um, uh, and, you know, I, people should ponder the, the tension between what we're going to find there uh, and who actually has power in American government. I mean, this will be, again, for all the talk about Democrats needing or being out of touch and needing to be back in touch with ordinary Americans, this will be the, uh, uh, the last, out of the last eight presidential elections, seven of them Democrats have won the popular vote. So you tell me who needs, who's out of touch. <laughs> All right. Well, that was 13. Uh, thanks again uh, uh, to Professors Hayes, uh, Professor Ludig, and Professor Rosenfeld. It was really great chatting with you. And um, if you like the podcast, tell your friends and family about it. If you have any questions, please email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And uh, we'll be back with a regular episode next week. Uh, as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.